I'm standing at the Blue Iron Gate on the east side of the Arizona Fairgrounds. Just beyond the gate is Veterans Memorial Coliseum. There's a three-man crew doing some type of maintenance work on the edge of the concave roof that gives the building its signature shape. More than 50 years ago, the Coliseum became the original home of the Phoenix Suns, the Valley's first major pro sports franchise. And coming from Chicago, which was a hustle and bustle kind of a place to come from, uh, and landing in Phoenix where much of the business decision was manana. In other words, things were at a slower pace and I had to adjust. Jerry Colangelo was recruited here to be the Suns' first general manager. The National Basketball Association was a fledgling league in the late 1960s. A funny story that first year was Johnny Kerr, who was the, our first head coach. The team bench was right next to the scorer's table. And there was a phone there. So one night early in the season, the phone rang and Johnny, being Johnny, just picked up the phone and he said, Veterans Memorial Coliseum, and the person on the other end said, what time does the game start? And Johnny said, what time can you get here? That was his response. Perched on a ramp outside the Coliseum, Jerry could see people drive onto the fairgrounds from Encanto Boulevard on the north and McDowell Road to the south. As the car lights, you know, came through, I knew we still had more people coming. And uh, when, they, when they really started to get to dwindle, I knew it was time to get back in the building and get the game underway. The Coliseum's inward slanted roof altered the acoustics inside. Amplified Suns fans sat right on top of the action. The place was nicknamed the Madhouse on McDowell. I knew that from day one, and that is proximity to the players, proximity to the court was what it was all about. Jerry has an elite acumen for sports business and perfect timing. He helped build a league that's part of an industry with a value that was predicted to reach nearly $78 billion this year. The forecast by Forbes was made before March, when the pandemic stopped the business and emptied most seats in our major venues. This includes the Coliseum, which was supposed to be the temporary home this year for the women's NBA Phoenix Mercury. No fans, it's weird for me to watch games and you know, they pipe in some crowd music and you see the people sitting there who are not people. Jerry chose Phoenix when it was on the verge of explosive growth. He built a sports capital and a big part of downtown. He's been worshipped and vilified for decades. And my goal is to make this a major league community. And that meant four major league sports. And so, um, I hate to use the word proud, but I, the results were I had impact on three of the four and probably influenced the fourth, the NFL Cardinals who were in St. Louis, just because of what we had done and what, you know, the door was open. From KJZZ Original Productions, I'm Matthew Casey, and this is Empty Seats, a podcast about the pandemic versus a sports capital. Metro Phoenix grew into such a sports town that we now actually have two capitals where teams play. COVID-19 slashed this year's schedule for basketball and baseball in downtown Phoenix. The hockey season in Glendale ended abruptly. Football is back in the West Valley now, but danger from the virus makes it unsafe for big crowds to go watch in person. 
Chapter 2 is about how we became home to enough pro franchises to even consider building two sports capitals. Most of our teams were born or relocated here during the final years of the 20th century, a time when the Valley's population boomed. You know, the, the thing about journalism, Matt, and especially sports journalism, is you have to understand that you're not in it to be anybody's pal. You're also not in it to be their enemy. Lee Chappell was once my editor for a summer internship. In the late 1980s, he was a reporter covering the Suns for the Arizona Republic. Before the internet, the newspaper was still king. Uh, the Republic in those days, and those days being the uh, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, reached more people than all of the local television stations combined. The Suns made a championship run in their first decade. A string of playoff berths led the franchise into the 1980s, but years of losing seasons got the longtime coach fired in 87. And then immediately after that, I quote-unquote broke the drug scandal story. And I say quote-unquote because it never really was a story. No one who was indicted ever was convicted of a drug-related charge. Uh, the county attorney who attempted to bring it was essentially run out of town. But what it did is it created a dark cloud over the franchise. And the owners at that time had had about enough. Suns players were accused of cocaine trafficking by a grand jury. A former Suns player who was also a witness in the drug probe died in a drunk driving accident. Then a team starter died in a plane crash. Lee says the Suns went up for sale in September, and speculation was they'd leave Phoenix. The negative publicity surrounding the franchise couldn't have been greater. But Jerry Colangelo got the first chance to buy the team if he could finance a deal. Jerry didn't have that kind of money, but where he was great was putting people together, forming partnerships. He had all of these contacts that he had developed in the community from 1968 through 1987. Jerry's window was small, but he set up an ownership group. Their deal was finalized on a Friday in October of 1987. The panic was clear from the opening bell as investors large and small sought to get out of the market to sell at any price. On Monday, Black Monday, the stock market crashed. If that deal hadn't closed on Friday, Jerry would not have been able to do it and the Suns would have been gone. The year after Jerry bought the Suns, a National Football League franchise made their new home in Sun Devil Stadium. Mike Gallagher, a lawyer who was tapped by Arizona Governor Bruce Babbitt to get an NFL franchise, had worked on this for years. Well, first of all, we thought we had the Philadelphia Eagles. This was in 1984. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the Eagles owner's daughter even came to Phoenix to look at schools for her kid. Mike says a dinner to celebrate the anticipated announcement was planned for early in the week. In any event, over the weekend, uh, the Eagles leaked it to Philadelphia that uh, they had made a deal to come to Phoenix. And uh, I don't believe they were playing us, but they may have been. Because in any event, the uh, city of Philadelphia went nuts and met a bunch of the Eagles' demands, and they decided to stay. Mike and his committee had opening talks with other NFL teams. Phoenix had grown substantially. Leaders wanted local sports fans to have more options than just the Suns. 
But I think the general consensus was uh, that it was time for Phoenix to uh, enter into the big league fray. When the then St. Louis Cardinals turned into a possibility, Mike remembers that team owner Bill Bidwill came out of the blue. He kind of unilaterally made the decision without talking to any Phoenix people to speak of that he wanted to come to Phoenix. The Cardinals' reputation as a bad franchise stirred debate over whether to wait for an expansion team. But that meant an uncertain timeline. So the Cardinals came to Sun Devil Stadium, which was ASU's home and controlled by the State Board of Regents. Here's what I remember. We had told Bidwell from day one, we being me and Turley and Eller, that we would use our best efforts to, to get him a, his own stadium. Keith Turley and Carl Eller were members of the Phoenix 40, a group of local business elites with huge power and influence. They ran point with Mike on the deal with Bill, who later soured on Sun Devil Stadium and said publicly that he was promised his own venue. It was really, his comments were really directed to Eller and, and, and Turley. Uh, you know, I was just a, a lawyer. I wasn't in a position to build any new stadiums for anybody. The Orlando Sentinel reported that Bill was booed by the not-sold-out crowd for the Cardinals' first regular season game in Tempe. Jerry Colangelo was more welcoming. And I met with him for lunch, and I said, Bill, this town... There's more than enough room for everybody, and if I could be of any help to you, I want to do that. Two workers with hard hats stand in a red scissor lift near the corner of 4th Avenue and Fillmore Street. One uses the handle of a sledgehammer to shape a cage of standing rebar so it lines up with another being lowered by a giant crane. From here, you can actually see a half dozen cranes towering over downtown Phoenix construction sites. Envisioning a skyline like this in the late 1980s may have drawn a laugh. Paul Johnson was on the city council. Phoenix had two major pro sports teams then, but neither played downtown. Uh, our council, you know, when we started, uh, downtown Phoenix was just in huge trouble. Public officials, government workers, and lawyers were about the only people who went downtown. Uh, when nighttime would come about, people knew to, to get out. It was crime infested. Uh, there was very little sales tax dollars, very little money coming out of downtown Phoenix. Years had already been spent trying to change this. Paul calls the downtown Phoenix of today a 60-year overnight success. A lot of people, they go down there and they go, wow, look at what happened. Right? It happened because a lot of people put a lot of effort into it and they shed some political capital to make it work. And the bigger the project, the more political capital that had to be spent to do it. In the late 80s, the Suns still played at Veterans Memorial Coliseum. It was a newer venue when Jerry Colangelo got to Phoenix, but it was an old one by the time he became owner of the Suns. I've always been an urban guy, so I believe that um, a facility in downtown Phoenix could be an impetus in terms of, uh, of growth, in terms of revitalization. Downtown Phoenix was not invited to the party in the suburbs that pushed the metro population over two million by 1990. But it's where Jerry decided the sun should be. And it's really the center of the valley when you think about it. All roads lead to downtown and all roads exit downtown. The Suns had won back their popularity, literally. Jerry had made wise moves to improve the team. Lee says the Coliseum's small size kept many fans out. Jerry has friends in a lot of places by now, 
and he began talking to uh, various people on the Phoenix City Council about coming downtown with a new arena, uh, making it a uh, public-private partnership. Phoenix New Times reported that the city spent $42 million to build the downtown arena. The Suns part was $52 million. Paul says use of public money made the idea of the Suns leaving the madhouse on McDowell unpopular. There were, there were people who thought they should stay at the fairgrounds. Oh, you? absolutely. Uh, a good percentage. A good percentage. Yeah. I would say that if you had done a poll at the time, it would have been over 50%. In 1990, Paul won the mayor's office and succeeded Terry Goddard. Paul remembers that one vote toward a new arena was already done. As mayor, he'd have to make more. Why did you try to decide to support public funding for... Th this is a, a little bit of heresy, but it is not the job of the elected official to always do what the polls tell them they should do. Politicians sometimes vote on morals, Paul argues. Sometimes they vote on a vision for a future possibility. The cost of doing this is hard-earned political capital. Then you have to make a decision. Now, what am I going to do with this? Am I just going to let it go to waste, or am I going to try to utilize it on something worthy? Utilizing it means sometimes pushing the edge of what you believe is right, but that you know isn't exactly popular. The NBA had become more popular than most would have imagined when the Suns were born in the 1960s. Stars like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and Michael Jordan made the league wealthy in the 80s, and in the early 90s, the NBA would go global. Lee says owners like Jerry sought to build luxury venues for fans. Jerry and his group and the architects and the designers went everywhere looking at existing arenas that were regarded as state-of-the-art and the greatest influence was one that had been open for just a couple of years the palace at Auburn Hills where the Detroit Pistons played and that building was aptly named because it had restaurants shopping amenities that made the game experience more fan-friendly Planning the arena also meant that Jerry had to think about the 300-plus nights a year when the Suns would not have home games. He bought an arena football expansion team to play in the new venue, and it was named the Arizona Rattlers. But before we, we made our final plans, I called the commissioner of the NHL, and I said, we're about to make our final decisions on, on the building itself. What are the odds of NHL hockey ever coming to, to Phoenix in the, in the foreseeable future? So not a shot. America West Arena opened in 1992. Jerry traded for Charles Barkley before the NBA season, and he led the Suns to the finals. Lee says fury over public money for the arena faded, and the first homegrown generation of fans cemented the Suns as part of Phoenix's identity. People love a winner, and they love to be able to identify with a winner. I mean, where else on earth would more than 100,000 people show up on a 110-degree day in June for a runner-up parade? During the finals, Jerry was asked to meet by Jim Bruner, the Maricopa County supervisor who worked to keep the Cactus League in town. I purposely didn't tell Jerry why I wanted to talk to him, because I'm afraid he might say, I'm not interested in baseball, and just hang up. Jim wanted Jerry to lead Arizona's next try at getting a Major League Baseball team. He'd seen a tiny article saying Phoenix was on the shortlist for possible expansion. Some digging revealed that the story had legs. Jim and Joe Garagiola Jr. went to see Jerry. 
And so we had this window. We had a guy like Jerry Colangelo who had the credibility, the ability, the foresight, the vision, and, and the guts, so to speak, to take a chance and make it happen. Jerry remembers feeling overwhelmed by the idea. His plate was already full. But I did agree to do a little due diligence. I spoke to major league owners that I knew in baseball, in particular Jerry Reinsdorf in Chicago. Reinsdorf owns the White Sox, which later moved their spring training operation to Tucson and came to Glendale's Camelback Ranch in 2009. Bud Selig, who went on to be the commissioner, but he was the, the owner of the Milwaukee team, George Steinbrenner of the New York Yankees, and they all encouraged me big time to go for it in terms of an expansion team. Jerry says he took on the project as a personal challenge. It meant he had to set up a team of investors to buy a baseball franchise, and the team would need a stadium, which Maricopa County had taxing power to pay for if the Board of Supervisors approved. Um, there was a vote, and it was contentious. Uh, Jim Bruner, who had not only aspirations, but he was a young political guy also, and he was running for not state office, but national office, um, cost him an election because of his support for the baseball tax. Jim says he'd been advised to resign before the vote and announce a run for Congress. He chose to wait until after, and he cast the deciding vote for a stadium tax that was conditioned on getting a major league team. Before the primary, baseball went on strike and the World Series was canceled. Jim's name stood out to voters, but not in a positive way. People ask me, would I have changed my vote? Absolutely not. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Because that was the only opportunity we'd ever have to have Major League Baseball in Arizona, right then. The strike ended in the spring of 1995. A month before, Phoenix and Tampa Bay were awarded expansion teams. The baseball stadium would be built next to the basketball arena. The home of the Arizona Diamondbacks cost $354 million to build. The Arizona Republic reported that roughly $250 million came from county taxpayers. Jerry says the price for just the team was enormous. And baseball in its infinite wisdom, and I'm being sarcastic when I say this, they increased the price of the franchise at the last minute. They withheld uh, national television money for three years, which was another blow. And contrary to my circumstances in building the arena, which where the timing was perfect to get the best bang for your buck in terms of cost in building, the timing for building the stadium, as it turned out, was not like that. With baseball on the way, hockey was the only major pro sport without a home in Metro Phoenix. The NHL commissioner had earlier told Jerry that there was no chance a team would move into the basketball arena. So sightlines for hockey were not part of the final design. But as soon as we built it, I get a call from the new commissioner, who was a friend of mine, Gary Bettman, who came out of the NBA. He was number three behind David Stern for a number of years. At Bettman's request, Jerry met with the owner of the Minnesota North Stars. And uh, we didn't hit it off that well. You know, his first thing was, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to give me to bring my team here? The Stars moved to Dallas instead. A year goes by and Gary Bettman calls me again and he says, Winnipeg is looking to move. I want you to meet with a couple of guys who are going to be the the major players for that Winnipeg team moving somewhere. 
One of the owners of the Winnipeg Jets is from Minnesota, and taking them there to replace the Stars was his first choice. Instead, the Jets moved to Arizona in 1996 and changed their name to the Coyotes. Jerry thought it was great programming for the arena, like indoor football had been and the Phoenix Mercury soon would be. But the facility design meant hockey fans could not see the entire ice from certain seats. Couldn't change that after the fact. But the NHL knew about that from the get-go. We even played some exhibition games. It was no big deal, no big issue. But once the new ownership and the team was there, there were complaints. And that led to a sale eventually to someone who had a, an idea of building the new arena somewhere else. Still, the Coyotes' arrival meant Metro Phoenix would join a small club of cities with sports teams from the four top leagues. Membership became official in 1998, when the Diamondbacks played their first game in their brand new stadium in downtown Phoenix. Barely more than a decade had passed since the Suns could have left Arizona. Jerry prevented that and built a sports capital downtown instead. Phoenix New Times reported that he was often called the most powerful man in the state. Well, I don't pay any attention to uh, things like that. I'm not impressed uh, by that. I never had any intent to do anything except do the very best I can. 1996 brought a work change for Lee caused by the Arizona Republic and Phoenix Gazette newspapers having recently merged. They were owned by the same company. We were in the same building. We were sort of rivals under the same flag. But the owners of the Republic knew that newspapers were starting to head south. After the consolidation, every reporter assignment from sports to courts went up for grabs. Now that had always been done periodically. Nine years, frankly, was a pretty long run on a beat, uh, what I had on the Suns. And during the uh, process of uh, switching beats, I moved to the Cardinals. His new workspace was Sun Devil Stadium, which hosted Super Bowl XXX the same year. This added to the Valley's reputation as a sports destination, but the venue did not meet expectations. And after that experience, the NFL said, we're never coming back. Get yourself a stadium and then we'll talk. And when the Cardinals played in Tempe, people yawned. The stadium wasn't even half full on many game days. The experience for the fans who did go was amateur. The sun reflected off of all of those empty aluminum bleachers, and for the brave 28,000 who uh, went out there, it was like cooking on a rotisserie, I suppose, or on a, on a grill, barbecue grill. Uh, it, it wasn't pleasant, and the product wasn't pleasant. Uh, and he didn't do an awful lot to improve it. He was Bill Bidwill, the owner of the Cardinals who'd gotten booed at the team's first real home game here. Bill died in 2019. The reason he moved to Phoenix was he was promised a downtown domed stadium. He was promised that? Well, he, there does seem to be some dispute about that, but he was under the impression that he had been promised that. Phoenix New Times analyzed contracts and correspondence tied to the Cardinals moving to Arizona, and the paper concluded that locals had only promised Bill their, quote, best efforts to build a stadium. Lee says there was never any hard evidence to back up Bill's belief. This also was one of Mr. B's, I guess you could say, flaws. Uh, you know, I hate to call it a flaw, but he was a handshake guy. His word was solid, and he expected that from everyone else. 
I don't believe that he ever had anything in writing from anyone. Bill tapped his son Michael, a former federal prosecutor, to lead the effort to get a new stadium. Lee remembers attempts to build one in the East Valley and on a reservation failed. Again, I never heard this from anyone in the organization, but if you put two and two together, you can well imagine that they might have been thinking, maybe it's time to move again. State leaders came to the same conclusion. Jim Grogan was one of the people appointed by Governor Jane Hall to the so-called Plan B Task Force. This group of senior executives and community leaders was charged with telling the governor if it made sense to build a stadium. Jim says the stakes were higher than just the Cardinals. There were also a significant number of tourism dollars at stake. And in the case of Arizona, which was a very tourism-focused economy, uh, that was very relevant. This was partly due to the homegrown Fiesta Bowl having outgrown Sun Devil Stadium. The bottom line was there are community leaders in San Antonio every morning waking up saying, how can we get the Arizona Cardinals? How can we get the Fiesta Bowl? How can we get Super Bowls? The task force endorsed building a new stadium. Money to pay for it could come from a hospitality tax. This was frowned upon by the anti-tax Arizona legislature, whose approval was needed just to pose the proposition to Maricopa County voters. And I uh, got into some trouble with one of my quotations in the newspaper that uh, this would not cost you as an Arizona taxpayer a penny unless you were having a tour de fair and frequented hotels quite a bit. <laughs> the legislature was skeptical, but some last-second maneuvering got it approved and on the ballot. This inflamed the ongoing debate over spending public money on sports ventures. To win voters over, leaders decided that part of the tax revenue would pay to build new spring training baseball parks. Another piece would fund youth sports facilities. And we were widely criticized. There was enormous consternation saying, you're never going to build a Cactus League stadium. You're never going to refurbish a stadium. You are never going to do anything for youth and amateur sports. Jim credits the Bidwill family, especially Michael, for the stadium tax winning at the polls. He says the cuts for spring training and local facilities also played a role. And he agrees with Lee that an upset victory by the Cardinals on the Sunday before the November 2000 vote helped it pass. Next, they had to choose where to build the new football stadium that Channel 12 later said cost $455 million. The location was up to the new state Tourism and Sports Authority, which got renamed when the federal TSA was formed after 9-11. Jim was the first ever chair of the authority that included people from all over the valley. They received well more than a dozen proposals. All of us, I would say, in agreement, wanted downtown Phoenix. Jim had lunch with the Phoenix mayor, who he says made it clear that the city did not want the stadium. The search continued, and the authorities studied several other sites closely. One they wanted in Tempe drew a warning from the Federal Aviation Administration. It said a football stadium built less than two miles from Sky Harbor Airport would be a safety hazard. Jim met secretly with the FAA. Um, and we sat down and he said, listen, uh, the city of Phoenix is our customer. The city of Phoenix is who we listen to. If Phoenix says it's okay to use the site, then the stadium could be built and the FAA would have them put red lights on top, like the baseball stadium west of the airport. So he said, 
this is a political uh, animal, and the mayors of Phoenix and Tempe are going to have to work this out one way or another. Jim says a Phoenix City Council member warned at a press conference that if the football stadium were built on the Tempe site near the airport, people would die. And of course, you know what's there now, uh, condos, apartments, student housing, and no one's died yet. Uh, fascinating, the reality of politics. Uh, it was fake news before there was anything we called fake news, but there was a lot of it flying around. Former Arizona Attorney General Grant Woods also says Phoenix pushed the FAA to keep the football stadium from being built in Tempe. Grant left political office in 1999. He represented Tempe in the stadium negotiations. We always knew that, that the FAA was getting pressured heavily by Phoenix. The Phoenix aviation director told the Arizona Republic that the real problem was that, if built, the football stadium would sit close to the center of Sky Harbor's north runway, if it were extended. I don't really know exactly what their problem was, uh, but they had one. You know, I, don't, I, I just don't remember exactly what, what, what it was, but they're the ones who killed it. I think they were afraid that Tempe would start taking everything. Grant got another client who also wanted a new sports venue. He was developer Steve Ellman, who along with Wayne Gretzky, would buy the Coyotes from the ownership group that moved them to Phoenix. Grant's mission was, find a place that would build an arena, otherwise the Coyotes would have to leave. So his idea was, let's find some place where we can develop around it, and maybe this combination of revenue from the development will help offset losses from uh, running the, the franchise. Steve's first choice was Los Arcos in Scottsdale. Grant met with city officials and learned a deal would not happen. There were talks with the Salt River Pima and Gila River tribes about building a new arena on a reservation. Then the West Valley came up. Glendale uh, wanted to do it more in a downtown area. They had a shopping center, strip center, that was, uh, had fallen on hard times, and they thought, why don't we put it there? The idea wouldn't work, because Grand Avenue would be the main artery for game traffic. Grant had coffee with a developer who was involved with planning for the Loop 101 Agua Fria portion through the West Valley. He told Grant about other land next to the freeway corridor. And it might be perfect, and you look where the freeway is going to be built. This might be the perfect spot for your arena, It'd be very accessible. So I said, okay, get that to me, and we met, and uh, we went back to Glendale and we said, what about this? Glendale's focus was still on renovating the dilapidated shopping center. Steve's compromise was that he'd do both projects, redevelop the strip mall and develop the land around a new arena south of Glendale Avenue and west of 91st Avenue. The Phoenix Business Journal reported that Glendale agreed to borrow $180 million to help pay for a new home for hockey. So that's why the arena went there. Frankly, we were not looking at it and we would have said no to Glendale. Grant says Glendale was aggressive in trying to bring the Coyotes to town. Leaders approved the Westgate development next to the arena, and Grant says the city made it clear that it would do the same thing to get the Cardinals stadium. So consequently, when they couldn't go to Tempe and other sites didn't work out, then it made sense to put it out there. Elaine Scruggs was mayor of Glendale when the city became the Valley's second sports capital with brand new facilities for pro football and hockey teams. She cracked the whip uh, when she needed to, and she uh, did it by persuasion when she needed to. She, she showed real leadership as a, as a mayor out there. 
Grant says a lack of leadership in Phoenix and the city's failure to compete are why the football stadium and the new hockey arena did not go downtown with the baseball and basketball venues. In my view, Phoenix misplayed their hand related to the hockey stadium and related to the um, football stadium. All of those should have been in central Phoenix or downtown. And they could have been, and they would have been. But Phoenix couldn't quite get their act together and figure it out. So Glendale built its own sports capital and went through years of ups and downs. The Coyotes' new arena opened in 03. The Cardinals' first game next door was in 06. And the football stadium hosted the Valley's second Super Bowl in 07. The Great Recession hit hard in 08. By 09, the Coyotes had been sold again, were put in bankruptcy and under control of the National Hockey League. Glendale would spend millions more to keep the Coyotes in its arena. Grant worked with the investor team that eventually bought the franchise back from the NHL, but Glendale had a new mayor. Jerry Wires drew a line on sports spending. Everybody's losing money. Everybody's got problems. So that was, was something you have to deal with. But this is a game they wanted to be in. And I'd say that for all sides. As a city or as an owner, you can't go into the, uh, the sports business without understanding that this is... Uh, this is a high-stakes gamble, and uh, it can be great, but there's a very real chance you're going to lose some money, uh, and maybe a lot of money, and maybe for quite a while. In 1988, an obsolete coliseum a few miles west of downtown was home to Phoenix's only major pro sports team. About 20 years passed, and the metro area had franchises from all of the top four American leagues. Two play in downtown Phoenix, where Jerry Colangelo built the first sports capital. The other two play in Glendale, a city that later added a spring training complex and became the second sports capital. After the Great Recession, the stadium in Glendale hosted three mega sporting events in consecutive years. NASCAR's championship weekend is next month in Avondale. Word on if the women's college basketball Final Four will come to Phoenix is expected this month. And the Valley is scheduled to host the Super Bowl again in 2023. This could be affected by the course of the pandemic, which has already shown its power to stop the sports industry. In Chapter 3, we'll meet a Tempe man and a local business hurt by the mostly empty seats in our many sports venues. For KJZZ Original Productions, I'm Matthew Casey.